0: This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now here is your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm delighted to have Dr. Jason Fung, who is a well-known world-leading expert in intermittent fasting, as well as low-carb. He is a Canadian-trained nephrologist, which means he's a kidney doctor. He has written many best-selling health books, including The Complete Guide to Fasting, Obesity Code, and The Life in the Fast Lane, and has an upcoming book coming out called Cancer Code. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here with me this morning. Dr. Fung,
1: how are you doing? Good, and thanks for having me on, Cynthia. It's great to meet you.
0: Absolutely. Well, Let's start from the beginning. So I know that you are up in Canada. How are things going, you know, given the fact I've heard there, they lifted restrictions and now you have more restrictions given yeah. cousin, How are things going there for you? Uh,
1: it's all right. I mean, it's, you know, I think it was the same everywhere, same as in Europe. You know, they, they had gotten everything sort of down from the COVID and then now they're seeing this big spike. So we we're seeing much the same thing. But luckily, there's not as many hospitalizations and deaths this time around, which is big. So there's a lot of cases, but there's less in the hospital. So that's always good to hear.
0: Absolutely. Less severity is definitely a good thing. But I'd love to kind of hear your story. I know you also are traditionally Western medicine trained and kind of came to the realization that some of the strategies you were using with your patients were kind of missing the mark. You know, We can address disease after the fact, but from a preventative standpoint. So what initially got you interested in intermittent fasting? I know it was from a true desire to be able to help and serve your patients, but what kind of got you on that path?
1: Yeah. So as a kidney specialist, what I saw was that about 50% or more of my population had type two diabetes. So of diabetes, sort of 95% is type two. So when I refer to diabetes, I generally refer to type two, just because it's overwhelmingly the uh, majority of cases. And so if you look at what causes kidney disease, diabetes is sort of Way, way in excess of everything else. So that's why I sort of became very interested in the question of diabetic kidney disease. And it struck me as very strange because if you have diabetic kidney disease, then really what you want to do is get rid of the diabetes. That way you'll never get the kidney disease because you don't have diabetes. And, um, you know, there's this feeling amongst doctors that diabetes is sort of chronic and progressive. But at the same time, we were saying that we knew it wasn't true. It was complete fabrication because if you lose weight, we also knew it was almost for sure that you'd either disappear or get much better. So it was a reversible disease. We knew it. Like we knew that even as we were saying it was chronic and progressive. So it was, you know, one was obviously a lie. And it was basically a lie we told ourselves because we were doing so badly on getting people to lose weight. So we lied to ourselves to say that this is chronic and progressive, when really, if we're being truthful, we should have said that doctors are doing such a crappy job in getting people to lose weight, that they're getting the diabetes and therefore getting the kidney disease. And that's very close to the truth. And so that's where I became extremely interested in the question of weight loss. And why we're doing such a poor job. And a lot of it, I think, stems from this sort of obsession with calories, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, it sort of misses the mark because the body doesn't actually measure calories in any way. So if it doesn't measure it, it doesn't, you know, detect it, it doesn't respond to it, then that's not the most important thing we should be focusing on. And that was sort of the focus of my first book, The Complete Guide, The Obesity Code, which is a science Facebook on sort of what causes weight gain and weight loss, and one of the natural in the last chapter I talk about intermittent fasting because that's actually a strategy that makes a lot of sense from a physiologic standpoint. Because I sort of went back to the beginnings and said, this is what causes obesity; it's really a hormonal disease, and this is what we can do about it. And sort of last chapter was about fasting, and then um, that's where I started to use it in a lot of my patients and saw a huge amount of success, like stuff that honestly just blew my mind, like people that. I had been treating for sort of 15 years with type 2 diabetes. And, you know, we started fasting and we changed their diet and it just went away. Like I had a guy who I had followed forever and, you know, nice guy, always wanted to do whatever he could to get better. But I didn't have the right advice to give him. And then finally, when I changed that advice. We got him off, I think he was on like 120 units of insulin, which is a really massive dose, to like zero. Like we took him off everything. His sugars were normal. So we actually made him non-diabetic and have been, he's been non-diabetic for about six years now. After 30 years of type 2 diabetes, including 15 under my own care, right? Or 10 under my own care. So kind of ridiculous you know, and that's where I became very interested in sort of promoting these ideas so that people won't have to get, you know, bad medical advice, such as the same one I was giving for so many years, and be able to make themselves better. Because again, if you get rid of that type two diabetes, then you are not only at lower risk of kidney disease, but you're at lower risk of a huge amount of other problems like heart disease and strokes and amputations and blindness and cancer. So like really, really important stuff that nobody was talking about. I mean, when I started talking about fasting in sort of 2013, 2014, like people thought it was insane to skip a single meal. It's like, and I'm like, why can't you miss a meal? And everybody had the consensus. Like, honestly, like 99.9% of medical professionals were like, no, you can't miss a single meal. And I'm like, why? Because if you look at the physiology, the body will just use some of the sugar and the fat because that is literally the very reason we store body fat and blood sugar is like so that we have a source of energy when we don't eat. We figured it out long time ago when we were cavemen, if we didn't, weren't able to survive a few missed meals, We wouldn't be sitting here today because we as a species would all be dead because food is intermittently available. So, therefore, we have evolved those things. And that's what body fat is. So, if you have too much of it, let your body use it up. That's all you're doing. You're using the body fat for literally the reason that we have it. And once I started to sort of get people, you know, there's a lot of issues that come up during fasting. And that's what the complete guide to fasting was sort of a more practical guide on how to do it, why you should do it and what are the myths around it because there was turned out to be a huge number of myths around it. You're going to lose muscle and you're going to, you know, go into starvation mode and all these sort of myths that were actually not rooted in science at all. They're rooted in sort of like voodoo or something like somebody had said it thought it sounded good. And it just got repeated and repeated and repeated until everybody thought "Yeah, that must be the truth because everybody's saying it.
0: That fear mongering that, you know, kind of perpetuates dogma that is largely incorrect. Well, I'm so grateful that you, you know, went on that journey. It was five years ago that as a nurse practitioner, I had worked in cardiology for 16 years and my patients were getting sicker and sicker and sicker despite you know, multi drug therapy. I mean, we used to sometimes we're amazed at, you know, patients would come in, probably patients like the ones you were seeing, 30 plus medications. And for me, it really, I kept saying it all begins with food. And a lot of the physicians I worked with and other nurse practitioners and PAs thought that sounded a little crazy. And so for me, I kind of took a deep dive in intermittent fasting five years ago, read your book, left clinical medicine, and kind of now really work on strategies that are nutrition focused. So, on so many levels, I'm so grateful that you've kind of set the tone and the stage for so many of us to be able to, you know, bring that great information to our own patients and, and clients as well. Now, one of the things I found really fascinating when I was reflecting on, you know, our conversation that we would have today was thinking about those missed opportunities with certain patients. There was that, you know, young diabetic, I think he was in his forties, and I think he'd had 13 angioplasty. So 13 procedures to go in and put stents in and, just had this wildly, obscenely difficult to manage blood sugars. And, you know, one of the things that you touched on when you were answering my question was talking about hormones. And so, you know, the key hormone, when we're talking about weight gain and driving a lot of these metabolic diseases, metabolic flexibility is insulin. And so I don't per se think that everyone that's listening really appreciates how functional insulin is. It's not all bad, but it drives so much of the illnesses that we're seeing in our westernized cultures, which is just astounding. And so for you, has it been, I'm sure it's been life altering when you're having the conversation, you're inviting your colleagues to challenge some of the beliefs that we were taught in our training, you know, that we've perpetuated with our own patient population. So let's talk about insulin and the hormonal effects of insulin and what drives a lot of the the fat issues you know fat and weight gain that people are experiencing with these you know highly processed diets you know I talk a lot about the value of less processed and actually interviewed Dr. Joan Eifland on Tuesday talking about how addicted people are becoming to processed foods how the you know the seed oils drive inflammation which drives this carbohydrate addiction. But let's touch on insulin a little bit so people can better appreciate what it does. It's not all bad, but a lot of what we're seeing is related to too high insulin levels.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, as you said, I think, you know, it all comes down to food. I think that's really true. And I get the same things when I talk about how important food is, you get these looks from other doctors, it's like, Oh, this guy's crazy. <laughs> and I think that to some extent, what it reflects is the changing sort of paradigms of medicine mm. that we're seeing. Because if you go into the 20th century, then the major diseases you're talking about, so from 1900 to about 1980, 1990, you're talking about infections so pneumonias and diarrhea and TB and all these diseases of you know that are infectious. I mean, even now, of course, COVID. But you know, we developed all these great antibiotics. So we, you know, penicillin and all this, and we developed HIV drugs and all this sort of stuff. And we got that really well done. But the paradigm of medicine became sort of: you come to me as a doctor or as a nurse practitioner, I give you a drug, and hey you get better right you have pneumonia i give you some kind of penicillin or something like that you get better and the problem is that the diseases change so we got better at that we got wound up with a lot of chronic diseases because we weren't dying of these uh, you know infections So what happens is, of course, you have chronic diseases like heart disease, like diabetes, like obesity, sort of these metabolic diseases, which lead to other things. But we use the same paradigm of medicine. That is, you come to me, I give you a drug. So if you're diabetic, you come to me, I give you insulin. And the problem is that that was never the right paradigm, because the paradigm in these chronic diseases is that you have to prevent these diseases and you have to go back to the root cause which gets us back to insulin. If you have too much insulin, you're going to gain too much weight. And that's the problem. So giving a drug is not going to help it because you got to get to the root of the problem, which winds up being a lot of food. So this paradigm shift that we've seen over the last sort of 20 years that a lot of doctors are missing because they're still in that mindset of, you have diabetes, you come to me, I give you a drug. You have heart disease, I give you a stent. You have, you know, cancer. I give you chemotherapy. Rather than going back and saying, well, what is it that led to this heart disease? Well, it's from the diabetes, which put him at risk, which was due to the obesity, which put him, you know, gave him the type two diabetes. So let's get him to change his foods, lose weight and therefore not get heart disease. Like that's the paradigm we have to be in now. And there's a huge amount of resistance because there's no money in it, right? So all the drug companies and all that sort of still want to stay in this old paradigm of medicine. And so it comes down to sort of insulin, because that comes down to the weight, which is leading to a lot of these problems. And the thing about insulin is that it's a normal hormone, okay? So it's just does a job. Okay. And the problem is that it's too much. Like if you have too much or too little of any hormone, you're going to run into problems. If you have too much thyroid hormone, you have hyperthyroidism, you treat it, right? If you have too little thyroid hormone, you give it. So insulin has a job to do. It's a normal hormone. There's nothing bad about insulin intrinsically, but any hormone is good in the right amount and too much, too little is bad. So insulin, its job is to tell you to store calories, right? So you, calories are just a unit of food energy. You eat, you have calories. Well, the insulin is what tells you that it needs to be stored. Okay. And we've known this for 50 years. When you eat, insulin goes up and insulin does a number of things. It increases sort of glycogen, production. So you take glucose, you string it into long strings called glycogen, you store it in your liver. So it's a way to store glucose or sugar. If you have enough glycogen, then what your body's going to do is you're going to take this glucose and you're going to turn it into fat. And that's called de novo lipogenesis. If you dietary fat, it actually goes directly into your fat stores. But what insulin does is it blocks you from burning that fat right? Because your body, when you have insulin, you want to store calories. That's a good thing because when you eat, you need to store some of it away for, I mean, that's the reason you don't die in your sleep every single night. It's because you're <laughs> able to store some of that food energy away. And when you don't eat, such as when you're sleeping, then your insulin is going to fall and you're going to start to pull some of that food energy back out. So either the sugar or the body fat. So even though insulin by itself doesn't necessarily cause body fat, it sort of indirectly does because it blocks you from burning fat because you're trying to store energy, not use it. So the whole, that's its job. It's doing what it's supposed to do. But different foods stimulate insulin to a different degree. So when we changed our diet in 1977, where we said, eat lots of carbs, right? So the food pyramid, the original food pyramid, which was full of bread on the base, right? Seven to 11 servings of bread and rice and potatoes. You know, that's what you should be eating. Well, what happened is that we started eating a diet that was very stimulating to glucose. We know that. You eat bread, you're gl- Blood glucose goes up. You can measure it in the glycemic index. So blood glucose goes up, blood insulin goes up. When blood insulin goes up, all of your energy is being shuttled into storage, and that's the big problem. If you're shuttling all of your energy into storage, so say you eat uh, white bread and jam in the morning, and you store it all away, and there's no energy coming back out because your insulin's high you're blocking the use of any of your stored energy. You're pushing it all into storage while well, there's nothing left. So then you get hungry at like 1030. You know you had your bread and you know, your white bread and jam in the morning. By 1030, you're looking around for a low-fat muffin because there's no energy left. You put it all into storage, right? And the same thing happens. Insulin spikes way up. You take all those energy, the calories that you had from your low-fat muffin, you store it all into storage. And then you're hungry. Lunchtime comes around. You eat a big plate of pasta, store it all away. And the problem is now you're eating all the time. You're eating five, six times a day. And that's sort of people that said, well, we're eating low fat and therefore eating six times a day. So therefore eating six times a day must be good, right? The premise, which is eating a low, you know, very high carb diet was good. That was the incorrect premise, but led to us eating six, seven times a day and then telling our kids and everybody who would listen that you should eat small meals constantly throughout the day. Which is ridiculous because we'd actually never do that. And how do you expect to lose weight if you're eating all the time anyway? Like it doesn't even make any sense. But the problem is that the insulin's too high. It's not ins- that insulin's bad, it's that you have too much of the insulin and that is your problem. And, you know, it's not the number of calories that you eat, it's what your body does with those calories. So you have to understand that, you know, everybody says it's just the amount of calories, it's not the amount because when you put in food energy into your mouth, your body has two options. You can burn it or you can store it.
0: Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep, in the right doses all in a highly absorbable liquid form all you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed don't worry it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep i've been using this product over the last several months i've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics which i like to share on social media with my followers and if you want a simple way to improve your sleep head over to www.bminerals.com and use code CYNTHIA for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code CYNTHIA for 20% off your first order
1: right? So if you burn it, it's fine. You're not going to gain body fat. If you store it, you will gain body fat. So the problem is not the number of calories. The problem is what you do with those calories. So that depends on the hormone, particularly insulin. And that means that the foods you put in your mouth, which stimulate insulin to a different degree, the only thing it means is that certain foods are more fattening than other foods. Like it's a completely logical conclusion because like, we came to this sort of ridiculous thing where we say, well, a hundred calories of cookies are as fattening as hundred calories of broccoli. It's like, no, they're nothing the same. And if you had any brains in your head, you would know that cookies are fattening and broccoli not fattening, right? Who gets fat eating broccoli? Like zero people in history, right? Out of the 7 billion people, I bet you very few, like not even one <laughs> have gotten fat because they ate too much broccoli right and i bet you that a lot got eat too many cookies so if you say okay well you know what's the difference you eat 100 calories of cookies and 100 calories of broccoli the minute you put it in your mouth the insulin response and your hormonal response is completely different therefore what your body does with those calories is completely different depending on you know that hormonal stimulus and that's the real issue so then you have to say well If the bottom line is that some foods are fattening, some are not, which is not any different than what your grandmother would have said, right? She would have said, you're not going to get fat eating broccoli, right? So logical conclusion, then you say, well, then I should eat less of these high insulin foods and more of these not high insulin foods. I'm going to fill up on the vegetables and the meat and the eggs and not fill up on cookies and you know that kind of thing right and that's the only thing that we're trying to stay and everybody says well you know you're so anti-science with calories like no the calories is simply a very low level of thinking it's a very simplistic level of thinking what you have to think is the level above it that is what is the body doing with those calories what's the hormonal response what's your body doing and of course what determines how many calories you eat anyway well, it's your hunger, which is all dependent on hormones. What determines how many calories, like people talking about fat equals calories in minus calories out? Well, that's always true, but never it's almost always misunderstood because what determines calories out is not just you know your willpower. It's how hungry you are. If you're hungry, you eat more. If you're less hungry, you eat less. That's the bottom line. And what determines how many calories you expend, right? It's not exercise. It's almost all basal metabolic rate. And what controls your basal metabolic rate? Well, it's your hormones. So what you're doing is you're trying to get to a deeper level understanding of what causes body weight gain. So therefore, you can make a sort of rational decision. If insulin is too high, how am I going to lower insulin? So changing your diet is a perfectly rational way to do that. But there's another way to do that. And that's intermittent fasting. It's very simple. It's been used for thousands of years. If you don't eat, your insulin is going to drop. As your insulin drops, your body's going to start pulling those calories out from storage and start using it. And the key is that there's nothing intrinsically unhealthy about it. Actually, it turns out to be super healthy for most people in North America.
0: Well, I always love your analogies. And and one of the analogies that I use with attribution is talking about, you know, fat. Is, so tapping into fat as your fuel source is like going into the freezer, but you have to give it enough time for your body to be able to access those fat stores because so many of us, like you mentioned, with the food Guy pyramid and my plate and all this other nonsense pushing a lot of processed carbohydrates, many of us are not processing our food properly. And so that then makes it nearly impossible to be able to lose weight. And I love that you really reemphasize the calorie piece because so much of the work that I do is teaching women to kind of let the calorie piece go, that it's really more about the macros. And so when we're really focusing on you know the hormone piece and, and recognizing that carbohydrates have a much different impact on insulin release versus protein and fat and not being fat phobic. I think that's one of the other mainstays of my training in the nineties was we were still in the mindset that fat was bad. All fats were bad. And we needed to have low fat non fat, which is just full of more sugar, which is driving the obesity issues even higher for sure.
1: Yeah. And I think that was the same. So I did a lot of training in the nineties as well. And of course that was sort of the heyday of the low fat diet. And mm-hmm. if you remember being cardiologist, we had those step one, step two diets. Yep. If yep. you remember, they were terrible. Like, so these, <laughs> in case the readers, uh, the listeners don't know what they are, is this was an idea back in the nineties where if you had a heart attack, you should lower your dietary fat to less than 10%, which is really impalatable, but it was based on the idea that fat caused heart disease, right? Mm So the problem was that fat didn't really cause heart disease. And so you're just eating this terrible diet that wound up being full of carbohydrates. And most of those carbohydrates were refined and a lot of sugar because people didn't care about sugar back in the 90s. -hmm. They only cared about fat. That was the only thing anybody cared about. And then if you had another heart attack on this low-fat diet, the step one diet, you'd go to a step two diet, Mm -hmm. which was 7% total fat which was just horrible You'd stuff it was it was well you're bad as long as you put enough sugar in there right so <laughs> if you're eating pasta and cookies and stuff It is fine except that it was really bad for you mm-hmm. and then all these studies came out that said well first of all these low fat diets actually didn't work at all so there's a the Lyon study and there's a number of other studies that led to this whole remember the french paradox where they said hey these French people are eating way more fat. They're eating this full fat dairy, crazy people. And they're eating like meat and, like foie gras and stuff. Like, they're crazy. They're going to get heart attacks. But of course, they had a third of the heart disease that Americans did, right? Because the fat wasn't that bad for you. So, this led to this whole discussion about the French paradox. And that was where people said, well, you know, we know that fat is bad and they're eating a lot of fat. So, therefore, they must be doing something else, right? Which is the red wine. And it's like, okay, well, that might have been true or not. But it was probably that the fat just wasn't that bad for you. And then in the 2000s, they came out with all these studies that started to show that, hey, there's a ton of fat sources dietary fat sources that were really really good for you like omega-3s and fatty fish and nuts and olive oil mediterranean diet and avocados and all this stuff right it was just you know a total repudiation of what we did in the 90s so then of course you know, everybody started eating more fat. And then now, you know, the people talk about saturated fat, and there's a lot of evidence that even the stuff, the butter. So the tragic thing about the butter, of course, was that people said saturated fat, like butter was bad for you, right? So you should eat margarine. So you'll remember <laughs> all the stuff. So, oh, my God, so margarine, was vegetable oils but is worse than that they actually changed it so that they processed it even further into trans fats which we now know are really really bad for you so it's estimated that these trans fats caused about 100,000 plus heart attacks and deaths in the United States every year so that was due to the trans fats so we told people in other words as doctors and dietitians and nurses we told people to eat the butter to to switch from the butter to the margarine because it'll be healthier for your heart and you'll remember Bissell and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And in fact, what we told them to eat the margarine was actually causing the heart attacks. Mm -hmm. Like that is so tragic. I can't believe that nobody even talks about it anymore. So of course, butter sales plummeted and margarine sales went up and then everybody got their heart attacks. And then, you know, 20 years later in 2015 or so, 2012, people are like, hey, you know, those trans fats were all killing us. And now it's totally reversed and butter's going back up and margarine's going back down. It's like, well, why did we think that we were so much smarter than Mother Nature butter, which is a natural food that we've been eating for thousands of years? Like, why did we think that butter, we've been eating it for a thousand years and since 1970, it's going to kill us, right? It's like, how does that work? As opposed to margarine, which we had never eaten you know, it's much more likely to kill us because our bodies just haven't had a chance to adapt to it. So it was a sort of a whole tragic story about this dietary fat thing caused a lot of disease, a lot of heart attacks, you know, people getting sick and obese and type two diabetic And yet, still, nobody says, like, you know, it was all our fault, right? Like, as a medical scientific community, we should never have really gone that far off into the deep end without demanding the evidence that it was actually true which nobody ever did. And that I think is the big problem. Like all the naysayers who said, you know, fat's not that bad for you. It was like, oh, these guys are quacks, right? They're going to kill people like with their olive oil and their avocados and nuts, like they're going to kill people, right? That's what you said. That's what we said in the nineties. It was really, you know, sort of a tragic time (laughs) in nutritional history.
0: No, and I agree. And and aren't we as clinicians, aren't we obligated to evolve, shift and change? I remind people of that, that, you know, how I trained at a big research institution on the East coast and the fact that I started seeing much like you did patterns that just made me think this isn't the right way to be doing things. There has to be something here that we're not, you know, looking more, more thoughtfully at. So I'm grateful that you are doing a lot of the research that's helping to change so much of what's going on, but let's pivot a little bit. So we obviously love intermittent fasting, we embrace it. We love it as a strategy, it's a lifestyle. What are some of the pitfalls that you find with intermittent fasting? And I'm speaking specifically to people that they start fasting, they lose weight, it encourages them to continue doing it, they change their diet, they feel great, they're sleeping better, they're having better relationships with their family and their loved ones, and they're a walking poster child of the strategy. But for the people that have been doing it for a while and they start having plateaus, this is a question that came up quite a bit when I mentioned on social media that we were going to connect. And so I know there are a lot of of variables that can impact plateaus with intermittent fasting. But in your experiences, what are some of the major reasons why this occurs? Well,
1: yeah, the plateaus are hard because really they happen very frequently and they're sort of stressing for a lot of people. And when a plateau happens, you know, we always say you have to sort of shake things up a little bit. So mm-hmm. the problem when you plateau is that what you're doing and what your body is doing has now reached an equilibrium. So your body always reacts to what you're doing. That is the normal process of homeostasis. That is, if you adjust something, your body adjusts differently. So just like if you go into a, you know, a concert, and it's really, really loud, right? It's, uh, but you get used to it after a little bit, or you go into a dark room, you know, you get used to it and then you go into the sunlight, it's like, whoa, it's so bright. So your body is always adjusting and that happens for everything. So it happens if you change your diet too, right? You can change into a really good diet. You can still plateau. I mean, we all know that, right? You eat what you think is a great diet or and it's doing great and then you plateau. So same thing with the fasting, it can happen as well. So in that case, there's sort of several ways that you can go you can either just continue and hope that things will get better. And sometimes it does. I don't say that it always does, but sometimes it does, but generally, we would ask people to sort of change things up. And there's several different sort of levers that you can change. So one is you can change the foods that you eat, or you can change your sort of fasting style. And that's, you know, to us, it's usually the fasting that gets the change. I mean, sometimes it's easier, that's all. And there's different ways you can do that. So if you decide to work on your sort of foods that you eat, you can change. I mean, no matter what you're eating, you can always make changes, right? And generally, that is enough to shake it up. And it's not to say that one diet, like there's certain general rules, but there's lots of different diets out there. You can, you know, go carnivore, or you can go vegan, or you know, there's different ways. You can go paleo, or you can cut out, you know, other things, cut out dairy or something like that. And sometimes these are triggers for people. So the point is that not one diet is always good for everybody. So one person, and this is part of the problem with these sort of people who get into these arguments about diet is that one person says, well, you know, I'm doing this and it's working so good for me. Therefore it must do good for everybody, but that's not true. So a low fat diet does work in a lot of people and a low carb diet does work in a lot of other people, but you get these people who say, well, I did low fat and I did well. So therefore low fat must be good for everybody, but that's not true. Like that's good for you. And if it's good for you, go ahead. I don't really care what I want to do is try and find what's good for somebody else. Or you could switch and do low carb, or you can do high protein, or you can do low fat or low, you know, you can do there's like literally hundreds of different diets out there. So you could change one of those. And maybe it does better for you. Maybe a low fat diet does better for a little bit, then you could change it for a little bit. If you know, for us, most people's foods are relatively like people get into this State and all of us too, where you sort of eat the same sort of foods, mm-hmm. like it's the same rotation. Especially true now that nobody's going to any restaurants. It's true, <laughs> it's the same yeah. rotation over and over again, and that's why you have, you know, this is Chinese food and this is Italian food because, as a culture, you wind up going into those same mm-hmm. rotations. So therefore, it's a lot easier to change your fasting and keep your foods the same. That's just from a purely uh, pragmatic standpoint. So therefore, you can change the way that you fast. And you can either change it by the way you time it. So instead of going, say you you do one meal a day and you go dinner to dinner, well, you can go breakfast to breakfast. I mean, that's a perfectly legitimate switch and it's still a 24-hour fast. You can change it up. So instead of going 24 hours all the time, you can alternate, say, between 18 and 36 hours. So do... you know, change that up. So you're still sort of averaging the same amount, but you're doing short and long, short and long, just like you would do with exercise. So if you yeah. do exercise, well, the biggest thing that everybody found now is super, super effective is high intensity interval training. Well, this is what fasting is. You're trying to change it up so that your body doesn't get used to it. So if you're jogging at a certain pace, like you get better, you get better, then boom, you get that plateaus mm-hmm. too where you just flatten out, you're not getting faster, you're not getting slower, but you're not getting a lot better. Mm-hmm. And remember the 70s, again, other than being really terrible for diets was this sort of heyday of jogging. And yeah. stuff. Right? <laughs> and of course it didn't lead to a lot of improvement. And then people said, well, what you should do instead is do a minute of maximal effort. Mm-hmm then rest. And then you do it the same. So it's the same thing as exercise. Same thing goes with the fasting. So let's go long and then short. Long and then short. Or you can do instead of a lenient fast where you have all this and coffee and this and that, go to a water fast only, right? It's you're increasing the intensity of the fast. By not allowing all these variations of fasting, which is like, you know, tea and coffee and bone broth and all this sort of stuff, which can work as well. But you're trying to find what you're trying to do is find what works for you, because it doesn't matter if it works for whole groups of patients. It only matters what works for you. And if cutting coffee is what works for you, then cut coffee. I drink a lot of coffee and, you know, I drink it all the time, but it doesn't affect me. Right. So therefore I keep it. There's no reason that I would cut it out just for the sake of cutting out. But if it stopped working, that'd be one of the things I could say, well, maybe I should go to a water only fast. So you can change the intensity of it. You can change that. And then you can change the timing. So instead of going to, you know, a 24 hour fast, then you could go to like a five day fast or something like that. And then the extended fasting is something that I think is highly effective for a lot of people. But it needs to be done sort of, you have to be cognizant that the longer you go, sort of the more problems you could run into. Not that you will. And and I'll tell you that lots of my friends and family have done these longer fasts and actually found it quite freeing. But it's hard because it totally destroys sort of your normal life. So you do a long fast for five days and you're eating dinner normally every day with your kids and, you know, spouse. It sort of ruins the whole dynamic, which is one of the reasons hard and why most people don't do it for a long time. But that's an option for you, right? So if you are able to swing it and you can push in these longer fasts in there, that's another way you can change things up. So lots of different ways to change it up. So everything from sort of just keeping going to, but mostly
0: Ignites Metabolism Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeka during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy provide mental clarity and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals and neutralizes lactic acid all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix needs to be part of your daily routine, and Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10 percent off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com/slash cynthia. That's 10 off your first per. That's 10 off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com/slash cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious.
1: We recommend. In our program, we have this program called The Fasting Method. So we discuss this a lot in groups and stuff. And it's useful because in this, at uh, thefastingmethod.com, you have these circles where people can interact with each other and they can share stories of what worked for them and, and that kind of thing. So that's one of the things that really helps with the plateaus is to just change it up. And it, it doesn't even matter if you think it won't work, just change it up and see if it does. If it doesn't, then don't do it anymore. Like it's as simple as that. Like people get so hung up on this. What if I go to a low-fat vegan diet? Well, I don't think it's a great diet, but hey, try it. What's the worst that'll happen, right? You'll either fail miserably, in which case you know and you won't do it again, or it'll work really good. And then you have another option for you to do, right? It's, and you don't have to do it all the time. Like if you're getting sick with a vegetarian diet because you're getting you know, too few vitamins or whatever it is, you can stop, like, it's okay. Like, there's nothing wrong with changing the foods that you eat. Like, unless it's, you know, for different reasons, religious or, you know, um, environmental or whatever.
0: Well, I think, you know, that's really key is that rigidity doesn't work well. We need to be flexible, whether it's, you know, diet, perspective, schedules, etc. And I think we need to give ourselves some grace. Now, I know that I'm really excited to hear about your new book,
1: Yeah, so this is actually a little bit different. So this is uh, the Cancer Code is coming out on Mm -hmm. November the 10th. And I got interested in this because one of the new things that we learned in the 2000s, and it wasn't an issue, nobody ever talked about this in the 90s, was that cancer is an obesity related disease. And that's uh, become, you know, as we've had this epidemic, it's become more and more clear that this is the case. So the first big acceptance of this wasn't actually till about 2003, when the big studies started to come out showing that obesity is actually a huge risk factor for all kinds of cancers. Now it's well accepted. It's actually about, you know, almost on par with tobacco as a sort of contributor to cancer. So really a large contributor there. And that's how I got interested in this question of what, how obesity that, you know, because I'm dealing with a lot of obesity, that's how I got interested in the question of cancer. turns out that the cancer question is actually far more interesting and complex than I had thought, which is where this book takes a bit of a different turn. It's not just about nutrition. So it does talk about nutrition and fasting and cancer. But the first sort of half of the book is really a discussion about what cancer is as a disease. And it's not what we thought it was, because obviously, it's not just obesity, right? If you smoke, you get lung cancer and that has nothing to do with obesity. So why do we get cancer? Like what is cancer? And that's the real important question that again, we never ask. So it's just like we talk about obesity, what causes weight gain, we never think about that, because we think it's all about calories, right? This is the same question, what is cancer? And, And this is where we've actually made a lot of changes that people have not probably recognized. So I sort of go through the history of the way we think about cancer, that is not as different diseases, but as a single disease, because The different cancers are quite different. Breast cancer is different than a melanoma, which is different from liver cancer. So they're different. But since about two thousand, people have started to look at how cancers behave as a group. And that's led to some real revolutions in the way we think about cancer, which is leading to real revolutions in the way we treat cancer. So I sort of detail there's how there's sort of been three big revolutions in the the paradigm that the understanding of cancer. So we started out by thinking of cancer as a disease of excessive growth. So you have a cell grows too much, right? So you have a lung cancer, which starts as a cell, turns into a cancer, grows too much, and then spreads, right? So it's just a cell that grows too much. And that paradigm of cancer leads you to the logical treatment. If cancer is too much growth, kill it. That's the bottom line. So you develop things like surgery. So you cut it out. You develop things like radiation, where you burn it. Or you develop things like chemotherapy, where it's just a poison. It's a selective toxin to the cancer. So cutting, burning, and poisoning. It worked great. Like, honestly, it was a huge sort of leap forward in treatment. Before that, there was no treatment. After that, there was all this treatment. So a lot of cancers got better. It's still the backbone of our therapy today. Cell that grows too much kill it. But this paradigm started to reach its limits by the 70s, because we had already done the studies, looked for these poisons, looked for different ways to use radiation and all this sort of stuff. But we're reaching the limits of how far that paradigm of understanding could take us. So we had to go sort of the next step up, which is, yes, this is a cell that grows too much, but why is it growing too much? Like We never answered that question. Why does smoke tobacco smoke, lead you to a cell that grows too much. It doesn't make any sense. And this was the genetic paradigm. So this next great revolution in cancer understanding was that this was a genetic disease. That is, there are genes that control growth. And if you have a mutation in those genes that controls growth, you could wind up with a cell that grows too much. Right. And that made sense because you had viruses, you had smoke, you had asbestos, chemicals and all these different things, radiation that damages cells, causes mutations. And if you hit that critical gene that controls growth or several genes that controls growth, then you get a cell that grows too much. So this doesn't invalidate that first paradigm, which is the cell that grows too much. It simply adds a layer of understanding that this is a genetic problem of cell growth. Right. It's, It's the genes that cause too much growth. And again, this was a huge revolution. So through the 70s to the 2010s, probably, it was sort of the dominant paradigm of cancer. It's a genetic disease. And what happens, of course, is that now you can develop new treatments that attack this new paradigm. So instead of developing drugs that are just indiscriminate killers of cells, you can now design drugs that correct the genes that cause too much growth. And this, the first few drugs that came out, so there's one called minmatinib, there's another one called trastuzumab for breast cancer, were just like revolutionary. Like the late 90s, people were like, you know, this is incredible because you could give these drugs without a lot of side effects because, you know, these drugs were changing these genetics. They weren't indiscriminate killers of cells. So then what happened, of course, is that with these first couple of drugs, everybody's like, wow, we're going to cure cancer. This was the sort of prevailing thought by the 2000s. All we need to do is figure out the two or three mutations that are critical for these different types of cancers, develop the couple of drugs to fix them and boom, you've cured cancer. So you're going to develop one for breast cancer. You're going to develop one for cervical cancer. You're going to do this. And that. So the problem was that, and this was called the two hit hypothesis. That is that you had a couple of genes that were critical and you hit two of them. And the reason that smoke, for example, tobacco smoke was causing cancer was not that it's a targeted gene damage, but it was that if you have a lot of damage by chance, you'll get more likely get those two that hit. But the problem was that we looked for these genes. So we did the human genome project in the 2000s. We mapped the genome of an entire human being. And then uh, we didn't, we weren't much closer. So then we did the, the cancer genome atlas, which was an even more ambitious thing. Instead of looking at the genes of one human, we're going to look at cancer cells and we're going to, we had like 33,000 different genomes and we just compare them and figure out which ones are good or bad. So the problem was that at last count in twenty eighteen, we identified about six million different gene mutations in cancers. So cancer didn't have one or two gene mutations. it had like a hundred. So if you had you know a cancer clinic, so somebody with colon cancer, patient A with colon cancer, he had a hundred different mutations, and patient B sitting next to him with colon cancer, had a hundred, mutations that were actually completely different from his neighbor. So this, of course, made it impossible to go any further with this genetic sort of paradigm because you can't develop 100 drugs for patient A and a different 100 drugs for patient B, even assuming you could afford it and they had no toxic side effects. So that brought cancer progress in cancer medicine basically to a screeching halt. So this paradigm that we had used to look at cancer, which we were developing drugs, this genetic targeted drugs really didn't work. Like the number of drugs that have been developed and useful are like, you know, we count on one hand probably. And this is after 30 years of good research. Like we spent a lot of money on research. So the question is again, and this is where we were sort of in 2010 sort of thing where we're making no progress. The paradigm we're using to understand cancer is not useful. And again, you have to go one step deeper in understanding to say, okay, well, we know that there are genes that are being mutated, which cause excessive growth. Okay, we know that. That's true. But what is causing these genes to be mutated? So the big premise of the second paradigm was that it's all random, but there's nothing random about these mutations. Cancer develops. So patient A, patient B They've developed that cancer independently, right? They had nothing to do with each other. And you can look at, say, patient A, say, you know, living in 1920 in Japan and patient B with the same cancer, you know, living in 2020 in North America, right? So separated by half a world, by a century apart, those two cancers will look identical. They weren't random. It was not a random change. So what is it that has been causing it? and this is where we are in the midst of a third great revolution in sort of understanding cancer which is that this is an evolutionary disease and primarily a ecological disease that is there's something guiding these mutations and it's actually a evolutionary process which is predominantly a response to injury so when you have a chronic sublethal injury your body responds in a certain way and the cell so if you have a chronic injury like tobacco smoke. Your lung cells, some will die because of the injury. Some will be okay because they didn't get that much injury. But in between, there's this chronic sublethal damage. And what that does is from an evolutionary standpoint, act as a selective pressure for these cells to become more sort of independent and sort of survivalist. They need to survive at all costs because they're dealing with this chronic sublethal injury. And that's what leading them to act more in their own interest than the interest of the entire environment, which is just like, you know, the lung cells have certain rules to be a lung cell. And that lung cell has sort of under this selective pressure has evolved differently to become more independent so it will grow it becomes immortal it starts to move around where other cells don't and that's what the cancer is it's an evolutionary process so that's the sort of really interesting part about cancer and and then you know once you understand that and you say okay well cancer is actually not a rare disease. It's actually a very common disease, you know, affects one in 10 Americans, that kind of thing. So therefore, if it's such a common disease, then it's not that cancer cells like the seed of cancer is always there, because the seed of cancer is the same in all our cells. What is it about the soil? What is it that is allowing these cells to turn into cancer so again you have to identify the cause in that case it's tobacco smoke get rid of the tobacco smoke in other cases like breast cancer you know that if you move from japan for example to america your risk of breast cancer actually like triples so it's not the genetics of it because that the genetics has stayed the same it's the environment and one of those things is Insulin, insulin plays a huge role in facilitating the growth of certain types of cancers So, breast cancer is a classic example, where it has, you know, six times the amount of insulin receptors. And the reason why is that insulin receptors allows it to kind of get a lot of glucose. And that's one of the things that you can now exploit and say, well, maybe you can you know, try to reduce the hyperinsulinemia, which is what causes the obesity. If you reduce the hyperinsulinemia, you're also going to put these breast cancer cells at a disadvantage compared to a regular breast cell. You're removing some of that fertile soil that allows the seed to grow. And that's where things like fasting are interesting because they'll allow you to maintain a normal weight. So we know that obesity is related to cancer risk, and therefore, if you can lose weight, you can reduce some of it. Outside of obesity, even if you take the same weight patients and you look at people who have high insulin versus low insulin, they have a much higher risk of cancer. So it's sort of a more complete understanding. It's not a book about, say, how to cure cancer. I mean, you can't do that. Or, or you know, For that, you still need those treatments. It's a way to understand cancer and the relationships that it has. And then what this third paradigm, this evolutionary paradigm is, as you understand that this is a cell that has evolved into something that is different, a foreign species, if you will. So, you know, it's weird to think that your own lung cell has now become a new species. But it's true because our immune system recognizes sort of our own cells versus foreign cells, right? And when it looks at a cancer, it says that's a foreign cell. That's not part of our own body. So that lung cell, which has turned into a lung cancer cell, has now become sort of almost you could think of as a separate species that's recognized as foreign. Now, if you're talking about foreign invaders, what you need to do is boost the immune system. So now that leads to a third sort of revolution in the way we treat cancer. We're not trying to kill cells, which is paradigm one. We're not trying to fix genetic problems, which is paradigm two. We're trying to boost the immune system. And now you have immunotherapy which is sort of the next huge wave in sort of understanding how we're going to treat cancer. But it's, it gets to back to understanding what cancer is to see how these treatments actually sort of flow. And it's an interesting, I think it's the most interesting story in medicine because it's one that's sort of still evolving and, you know, we still need to try and understand it more. And we have such a lack of a fundamental understanding of what this disease is actually is and that's what this is sort of an exploration of.
0: Well it sounds incredibly fascinating. I'm grateful that you, you know, took the time to explain those paradigms and how intermittent fasting, you know, there it is still relevant to the conversation as to, you know, keeping those insulin levels low and recognizing that we know that I think cancer is like one of the number two causes of death in the United States. And certainly with the you know escalating obesity rates, something everyone needs to be considering and recognizing as well that, you know, with more prolonged episodes of fasting, you'll get, you know, stem cell activation and and things that can really boost immunity. Well, Dr. Fung, I want to be respectful of your time. I know that you're a very busy individual. How can my listeners find you on social media or on your website?
1: Yeah, so my website is thefastingmethod.com. So there's a lot of links to sort of blogs and free blogs and videos and stuff that we've done. And there's also a paid program. If you're having trouble with fasting to get the tools and the kind of community that's going to help you succeed, because even though it's easy to say what it is it's not always easy to put it into practice and that's what that's there to help you with and then on social media there it's uh you can find me on twitter and instagram it's at dr jason fung that's dr jason fung on youtube just a word (laughs) of warning the channel is Jason Fung. If you go to Doctor Jason Fung, you get into some guy who scammed my name and image and uses it to sell a whole lot of stuff. Oh no! So on YouTube, just make sure you go to Jason Fung, which actually has one of those blue check marks on it. Otherwise, I get these messages every so often. It's like, why are you selling this? I'm like, oh, you went to uh, the other site, didn't you? (laughs) So anyway, you know, there's videos there, and you know, we go over all of these things that we talk about. So you know, hopefully people will, will be able to watch that and get some uh, good information.
0: There's always a scammer that's out there, right? But no, <laughs> thank you for the clarification. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. I mean, I look up to you and admire you greatly and really am grateful for your time today. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.